Section thirty four of a popular history of France, volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Fricker. A popular history of France from the earliest times, volume four, by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter thirty two. Francis the second. July tenth, fifteen fifty nine to December fifth, fifteen sixty. Part three. All seemed to be over, but the whole of France had been strongly moved by what had just taken place, and though the instructions which invite a people to interfere in its own destinies were not, at the date of the sixteenth century, in regular and effective working order, there was everywhere felt, even at court, the necessity of ascertaining the feeling of the country. On all sides there was a demand for the convocation of the States General. The Guise and the Queen Mother, who dreaded this great and independent national power, attempted to satisfy public opinion by calling an assembly of notables, not at all numerous and chosen by themselves. It was summoned to meet on August twenty-first, 1560, at Fontainebleau, in the apartments of the Queen Mother. Some great lords, certain bishops, the Constable de Montmorency, two marshals of France, the privy councillors, the knights of the order, the secretaries of state and finance, Chancellor de l'Hôpital and Coligny took part in it. The King of Navarre and the Prince of Conde did not respond to the summons they received. The constable rode up with a following of six hundred horse. The first day was fully taken up by a statement, presented to the assembly by l'Hôpital, of the evils that had fallen upon France, and by a declaration on the part of the Guise that they were ready to render an account of their administration and of their actions. Next day, just as the Bishop of Valence was about to speak, Coligny went up to the king, made two genuflections, stigmatized in energetic terms the Amboise conspiracy and every similar enterprise, and presented two petitions one intended for the king himself, and the other for the queen-mother. They were forwarded to me in Normandy, said he, by faithful Christians, who make their prayers to God in accordance with the true rules of piety. They ask for nothing but the liberty of holding their own creed, and that of having temples and celebrating their worship in certain fixed places. If necessary, this petition would be signed by fifty thousand persons. And I, said the Duke of Guise, brusquely, would find a million to sign a contrary petition. This incident went no further between the two speakers. A great discussion began as to the reforms desirable in the church, and as to the convocation of a general council, or, in default thereof, a national council. The Cardinal of Lorraine spoke last, and vehemently attacked the petitions presented by Admiral de Coligny. Though couched in moderate and respectful terms, said he, this document is, at bottom, insolent and seditious. It is as much as to say that those gentry would be obedient and submissive if the king would be pleased to authorise their mischievous sentiments. For the rest, he added, as it is merely a question of improving morals and putting in force strict discipline, the meeting of a council, whether general or national, appears to me quite unnecessary. I consent to the holding of the states-general." the opinion of the cardinal of lorraine was adopted by the king the queen mother and the assemblage an edict dated august twenty sixth convoked a meeting of the states-general at meaux on the tenth of december following as to the question of a council general or national it was referred to the decisions of the pope and the bishops of france 
Meanwhile, it was announced that the punishment of sectaries would for the present be suspended, but that the king reserved to himself and his judges the right of severely chastising those who had armed the populace and kindled sedition. Thus it was, adds de Thau, that the Protestant religion hitherto so hated began to be tolerated, and in a manner authorized by consent of its enemies themselves. The elections to the states-general were very stormy. All parties displayed the same ardor, the Guise, by identifying themselves more and more with the Catholic cause, and employing, to further its triumph, all the resources of the government. The reformers, by appealing to the rights of liberty and to the passions bred of sect and of local independence. A royal decree was addressed to all the bailiffs of the kingdom. Ye shall not fail, said the king to them, to keep your eyes open and give orders that such mischievous spirits as may be composed of the remnants of the Amboise rebellion or other gentry, studious of innovation and alteration in the state, be so discovered and restrained that they be not able to corrupt by their machinations, under whatsoever pretext they may hide them, simple folks led on by confidence in the clemency whereof we have heretofore made use. The bailiffs followed, for the most part, successfully, but in some cases vainly, the instructions they had received. One morning in December 1560, the Duke of Guy was visited by a courier from the Comte de Villars, governor of Languedoc. He informed the Duke that the deputies of that province had just been appointed, and that they all belonged to the new religion, and were amongst the most devoted to the sect. There was not a moment to lose, for they were men of wits, general reputation, and circumspection. The governor was very vexed at not having been able to prevent their election and departure, but plurality of votes had carried the day against him. This dispatch was no sooner received than some men were got ready to go and meet those deputies, in order to put them in the place where they would never have been able to do good or harm. The deputies of Languedoc escaped this ambuscade, and arrived safe and sound at Orleans. But they were kept under strict watch, and their papers were confiscated up to the moment when the death of the king occurred to deliver them from all fear. In Provence, in Dauphiny, in the courtship of Avignon, at Lyon, on occasion, and in the midst of the electoral struggle, several local risings, seizures of arms, and surprisals of towns took place, and disturbed the public peace. There was not yet religious civil war, but there were the preparatory note and symptoms of it. At the same time that they were thus labouring to keep out of the approaching states-general adversaries of obscure rank and belonging to the people, the Guise had very much at heart a desire that the general leaders of the reformers and of the Catholic malcontents, especially the two princes of the House of Bourbon, the King of Navarre and the Prince of Conde, should come to this assembly, and there find themselves under the thumb of their enemies. They had not gone to the assemblage of notables of Fontainebleau, and their hostility to the Guise had been openly shown during and since that absence. Nothing was left untried to attract them, not to Meaux any longer, but to Orleans, whither the meeting of the States-General had been transferred. King Francis II, a docile instrument in the hands of his uncles and his young queen, their niece, wrote letter after letter to the King of Navarre, urging him to bring with him his brother, the Prince of Conde, to clear himself of the accusations brought against him by these miserable heretics who made marvellous charges against him. Conde would easily prove the falsity of the assertions made by these rascals. The King of Navarre still hesitated. The King insisted haughtily, 
I should be sorry, he wrote on the 30th of August, 1560, that into the heart of a person of such good family, and one that touches me so nearly, so miserable an inclination should have entered. Being able to assure you that wherein soever he refuses to obey me, I shall know perfectly well how to make it felt that I am king. The Prince of Conde's mother-in-law, the Countess of Roy, wrote to the Queen Mother that the Prince would appear at court if the King commanded it but she begged her beforehand not to think it strange if, on going to a place where his most cruel enemies had every power, he went attended by his friends. Whether she really were, or only pretended to be, shocked at what looked like a threat, Catherine replied that no person in France had a right to approach the king in any other wise than his ordinary following, and that, if the Prince of Conde went to court with a numerous escort, he would find the king still better attended. At last the King of Navarre and his brother made up their minds. How could they elude formal orders? Armed resistance had become the only possible resource, and the Prince of Conde lacked means to maintain it. His scarcity of money was such that, in order to procure him a thousand gold coins, his mother-in-law had been obliged to pledge her castle of Germany to the Constable de Montmorency. In spite of fears and remonstrances on the part of their most sincere friends, the two chiefs of the House of Bourbon left their homes and set out for Orleans. On their arrival before Poitiers, great was their surprise. The governor, Montpezat, shut the gates against them as public enemies. They were on the point of abruptly retracing their steps, but Montpezat had ill understood his instructions. He ought to have kept an eye upon the Bourbons without displaying any bad disposition towards them, so long as they prosecuted their journey peacefully. The object was, on the contrary, to heap upon them marks of respect and neglect nothing to give them confidence. Marshal de Terme, dispatched in hot haste, went to open the gates of Poitiers to the princes, and received them there with the honours due to them. They resumed their route, and arrived on the 30th of October at Orleans. The reception they there met with cannot be better described than it has been by the Duke of Aumale. Not one of the crown's officers came to receive the princes. No honour was paid to them. The streets were deserted, silent, and occupied by a military guard. In conformity with usage, the King of Navarre presented himself on horseback at the great gate of the royal abode. It remained closed. He had to pocket the insult and pass on foot through the wicket, between a double row of gentlemen wearing an air of insolence. The King awaited the princes in his chamber. Behind him were ranged the Guise and the principal lords. Not a word, not a salutation on their part. After this freezing reception, Francis II conducted the two brothers to his mother, who received them, according to the Renier de la Planche's expression, with crocodile's tears. The Guise did not follow them thither, in order to escape any personal dispute, and so as not to be hearers of the severe words which they had themselves dictated to the young monarch. The king questioned Conde sharply, but the latter, who was endowed with great courage and spoke as well as ever any prince or gentleman in the world, was not at all startled, and defended his cause with many good and strong reasons, protesting his own innocence and accusing the Guise of calumniation. When he haughtily alluded to the word of honour which had been given him, the king, interrupting him, made a sign, and the two captains of the guard, Brise and Chauvigny, entered and took the prince's sword. He was conducted to a house in the city near the Jacobins, which was immediately barred, crenellated, surrounded by soldiers, and converted into a veritable Bastille. Whilst they were removing him thither, Conde exclaimed loudly against this brazen violation of all the promises of safety by which he had been lured on when urged to go to Orleans. 
the only answer received was his committal to absolutely solitary confinement and the withdrawal of his servants the king of navarre vainly asked to have his brother's custody confided to him he obtained nothing but a coarse refusal and he himself separated from his escort was kept under ocular supervision in his apartment the trial of the prince of conde commenced immediately he was brought before the privy council he claimed as a prince of the blood and knight of the order of st michael he had his right to be tried only by the court of parliament furnished with the proper complement of peers and knights of the order this latter safeguard was worth noting in his case for there had been created just lately eighteen new knights all friends and creatures of the guise his claim however was rejected and he repeated it at the same time refusing to reply to any interrogation and appealing from the king ill-advised to the king better advised a priest was sent to celebrate mass in his chamber but i came said he to clear myself from the calumnies alleged against me which is of more consequence to me than hearing mass he did not attempt to conceal his antipathy towards the guise and the part he had taken in the hostilities directed against them an officer to whom permission had been given to converse with him in presence of his custodians told him that an appointment accommodation with the duke of guise would not be an impossibility for him appointment between him and me answered conde it can only be at the point of the lance the duchess renee of ferrara daughter of louis the twelfth having come to france at this time went to orleans to pay her respects to the king the duke of guise was her son-in-law and she reproached him bitterly with conde's trial you have just opened said she a wound which will bleed a long while they who have dared to attack the persons of the blood royal have always found it a bad job the prince asked to see in the presence of such persons as the knight might appoint his wife eleanor of roy who from the commencement of the trial solicited this favour night and day often throwing herself on her knees before the king with tears incredible but the cardinal of lorraine fearing lest his majesty should be moved with compassion drove away the princess most rudely saying that if she had her due she would herself be placed in the lowest dungeon for them of guise the princess was a thorn in the flesh for she lacked not wits or language or courage insomuch that they had some discussion about making away with her she demanded that at any rate able lawyers might act as counsel for her husband peter robert and francis de marillac advocates of renown in the parliament of paris were appointed by the king for that purpose but their assistance proved perfectly useless on the twenty sixth of november fifteen sixty the prince of conde was sentenced to death and the sentence was to be carried out on the tenth of december the very day of the opening of the states general most of the historians say that when it came to a question of signing it three judges only chancellor de l'hopital the councillor of state de portail and the aged count of sancerre louis de Beul, refused to put their names to it for my part said the scrupulous to thule i can see nothing quite certain as to all that i believe that the sentence of death was drawn up and not signed i remember to have heard it so said a long while afterwards by my father a truthful and straightforward man to whom this form of sentence had always been distasteful many contemporaries report and de thoe accords credence to the report that in order to have nothing more to fear from the house of bourbon the guise had resolved to make away with king antony of navarre as well as his brother the prince of conde but by another process 
feeling persuaded that it would be impossible to obtain against the elder brother a sentence ever so little in accordance with justice for his conduct had been very reserved they had it is said agreed that king francis the second should send for the king of navarre into his closet and reproach him severely for his secret complicity with his brother conde and that if the king of navarre defended himself stubbornly he should be put to death on the spot by men posted there for the purpose it is even added that francis the second was to strike the first blow catherine de medici who was beginning to be disquieted at the arrogance and success of the lorraine princes sent warning of this peril to the king of navarre by jacqueline de longvie duchess of montpensier and just as he was proceeding to the royal audience from which he was not sure to return antony de bourbon who was wanting in head rather than in heart said to renti one of his gentlemen if i die yonder carry my blood-stained shirt to my wife and my son and tell my wife to send it round to the foreign princes of christendom that they may avenge my death as my son is not yet of sufficient age we may remark that the wife was jean d'albret and the son was to be henry the fourth according to the chroniclers when francis the second looked in the eyes of the man he was to strike his fierce resolve died away the king of navarre retired safe and sound from the interview and the duke of Guise, irritated at the weakness of the king his master muttered between his teeth tis the very whitest liver that ever was in spite of de thaux's endorsement of this story it is doubtful whether its authenticity can be admitted if the interview between the two kings took place prudence on the part of the king of navarre seems to be quite as likely an explanation of the result as hesitation to become a murderer on the part of francis the second one day conde was playing cards with some officers on guard over him when a servant of his who had been permitted to resume attendance on his master pretending to approach him for the purpose of picking up a card whispered in his ear our gentleman is crocked the prince mastering his emotion finished his game he then found means of being for a moment alone with his servant and learned from him that francis the second was dead on the seventeenth of november fifteen sixty as he was mounting his horse to go hunting he fainted suddenly he appeared to have recovered and was even able to be present when the final sentence was pronounced against conde but on the twenty ninth of november there was a fresh fainting fit it appears that ambrose pere at that time the first surgeon of his day and a faithful reformer informed his patron admiral coligny that there would not be long to wait and that it was all over with the king up to the very last moment either by themselves or through their niece mary stuart the guise preserved their influence over him francis the second sent for the king of navarre to assure him that it was quite of his own accord and not by advice of the guise that he had brought con to trial he died on the fifth of december fifteen sixty of an effusion of the brain resulting from a fistula and an abscess in the ear through a fog of brief or doubtful evidence we can see at the bedside of this dying king his wife mary stuart who gave him to the last of her tender ministrations and admiral de coligny who when the king had heaved his last sigh rose up and with his air of pious gravity said aloud before the cardinal of lorraine and the others who were present gentlemen the king is dead a lesson to us to live at the same moment the constable de montmorency 
who had been ordered some time ago to orleans but had according to his practice travelled but slowly arrived suddenly at the city gate threatening to hang the ill-informed keepers of it who hesitated to let him enter and hastened to fold in his arms his niece the princess of conde whom the death of francis the second restored to hope End of section thirty four recording by john fricker